Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. Indigenous environmental advocates told world leaders to learn from traditional stewardship practices across the globe. They also touted their own innovative solutions for the effects of climate change. Those are among the messages from attendees at this year's United Nations Conference of the Parties in Dubai. We'll talk with Native advocates who are part of the COP28 meetings to help steer international environmental policy. That's coming up after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Tribal and federal leaders recently gathered at the Interior Department for the White House Tribal Nations Summit. Discussions included protecting tribal lands from the effects of climate change. The Mountain West News Bureau's Caleb Radel reports. The Quinault Indian Nation is located along the Washington coast, where the sea level is rising and causing floods. That's why the tribe's working to relocate to higher ground. The Interior Department is giving them $25 million to help. Tyson Johnson is the tribe's director of self-governance. Now that these targeted investments are starting to occur, tribes that are smaller, that don't have access to capital, are finally getting the resources they need to move from the planning phase and into the implementation phases of their work. Many tribal communities are affected by wildfires, drought, and extreme heat, which can threaten food, water, and energy supplies. Earlier this year, the agency made $120 million available for tribes facing climate impacts. For National Native News, I'm Caleb Radel. Native women leaders were prominent at the White House Tribal Nation Summit. Crystalline Curley, the speaker of the 25th Navajo Nation Council, was among attendees. She made history this year, becoming the first Navajo woman to serve as speaker on the tribe's council. She says women in leadership is becoming normalized today, as many tribal leaders from across the country come from matrilineal societies. Our mothers, our grandmas are the decision makers at home. And when you look at a lot of these issues, especially federally, locally, and even in states, a lot of these issues that are impacting us indigenous people is home issues, mental health, behavioral health, down to even water, food security. And I always put that metaphor out there. It's going to be better coming from a woman, you know, as a motherly figure to fight for these basic needs. And we bring it to these decision makers, bring it into, uh, integrate it into solutions. Curly was grateful to take part in the summit. Many of our tribal leaders are um, here and being a part of the discussion of, regarding federal policy and the direction that the Biden-Harris administration wants to take the direction in. And we're really uh, fortunate to be here to be part of the table. I think in Indian country, we always say that we want to be part of these discussions. We want to be part of the decision-making process. And this is a great time to do it today. There were many other Native women leaders at the summit, including Laura Ann Chasson, the first Homa leader of the United Homa Nation to ever attend the summit, and Bishop Paiute Tribal Chair Merrill Picard, who introduced Vice President Kamala Harris. On the federal and congressional level, Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland, Laguna Pueblo, made history as a Native woman in Congress and as Cabinet Secretary. She joined virtually after contracting COVID. U.S. Treasurer Chief Lynn Malerba, the 
the Mohegan tribe's first female chief in the tribe's modern history and first Native American U.S. treasurer was in attendance to hear President Joe Biden's remarks, along with Congresswoman Sharice Davids, Ho-Chunk, who also made history as a Native woman in Congress. A federal court case was recently dropped after the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribal Court reversed its formal banishment of two Dupree School District employees. The school district is not affiliated with the tribe, but sits inside the reservation borders in South Dakota. Teacher Sarah Schaff and District Superintendent Keith Fodness initiated the lawsuit in response to the exclusion. They were banished from the reservation at the beginning of the school year, facing allegations of child abuse and failure to report. A third employee also faced exclusion, but her case was dismissed in September. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Drummond Woodsum, a full-service law firm whose nationally recognized tribal nations practice provides services to tribal nations and their enterprises and to companies that do business with tribes across the country. More at dwmlaw.com. When you celebrate responsibly, you ensure holidays filled with joy, love, and cherished moments. And you keep yourself and loved ones safe while setting a positive example. Cheers to safe celebrations. Support by Diageo and the Multicultural Consortium for Responsible Drinking. More at drinkiq.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. World leaders are not upholding the best interests of indigenous people when it comes to action on climate change. That is one of the key messages indigenous representatives sent during this year's United Nations Conference of the Parties, or COP28, that just concluded in Dubai. John Kerry, the U.S. Climate Envoy, says the agreement that came out of the conference sends very strong messages to the world about solving climate change. But at least 100 other countries say this year's agreement takes a weak stance on phasing out fossil fuels. At a closing session, Sarah Hansen with Indigenous Climate Action expressed her disappointment at the lack of action coming from the conference. Thank you for the compromise decision, but we would like to remind all of you that we cannot compromise for our Mother Earth. Yes, in this COP, you see Indigenous leaders and Indigenous youth in every corner of the venue. We are indispensable to climate action and decision at all levels, but yet our rights and knowledge continue to be relegated to the sidelines in negotiations and established youth spaces. We are not here simply for your photo opportunities. We are rights holders under the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, and we must be at the decision-making table. Why are we seeing greater numbers of oil and gas lobbyists, including in the closed door negotiations? These individuals outnumbered indigenous delegates seven times over. They've been given a green light to continue developing on our lands in the name of green colonialism and false solutions. The just transition cannot be an excuse for the extraction of minerals on our lands. We will not allow our rights to be diminished, undermined, combined, or confused in any way. 
Regardless of the power imbalances and lack of transparency in the negotiations, we remain committed to ensuring that our voices, our solutions, and our wisdom guide the development of an effective climate strategy. This includes keeping the 1.5 degree Celsius target alive and transforming from the colonial capitalist systems that created this crisis and continue to commodify the sacred. Empty pledges and promises cannot resolve the climate crisis. Our inherent collective rights, knowledge systems, and participation have continued to be overlooked in the global stocktake, and we are worried about the Article 28 implementation, including Article 6, loss and damage, climate finance, just transition, and adaptation texts adopted this morning. We are frontline defenders, stewards, and keepers of sacred relationships and knowledge necessary for a sustainable future. Our peoples have been sounding the alarms and science has finally caught up with what Indigenous people have already known for generations. You must listen. That was Sarah Hansen from Indigenous Climate Action from this year's COP28 in Dubai. Coming up, we'll get a sampling of perspectives from Indigenous environmental advocates about COP28. As always, you can join us. Call in at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us from Gallup, New Mexico is Janine Yazzie. She's the Southwest Regional Director at Indian Collective. She's Diné. Hi, Janine. Welcome back to Native America Calling. Hi, thank you for having me. Joining us from Tulsa, Oklahoma is Ozawa Banishi Albert. She's the co-executive director of the Climate Justice Alliance. She's Anishinaabe and Yuchi. Banishi, welcome back to Native America Calling as well. Awesome, everyone. Good to be here. And also joining us today is Tom Goldtooth. He's the executive director of the Indigenous Environmental Network. He's Diné and Metawakanton, Dakota. Tom, welcome back to Native America Calling. Yeah, and how Medakiapi. I'm glad to be back. Well, it's wonderful to have all of you folks on the show today. And Janine, I'm going to go ahead and start with you and tell us going into this year's conference there in Dubai, what was the biggest issue you wanted to have addressed? Well, Indian Collective um, partnered for the second year in a row with the Indigenous Peoples Forum on Climate Change Caucus to sponsor the Indigenous Peoples Pavilion, but to also support um, the main negotiation priorities um, represented by the caucus, um, which really works to create shared positions across the Indigenous Peoples attending COP28 um, from all of the seven UN socio-cultural regions around the globe. And so this kind of gave us a bird's eye view over uh, many of the different work streams um, that were taking place. And so a lot of the priorities were around ensuring in Article 6 negotiations, for example, um, that indigenous rights, our human rights safeguards continue to be advocated for in the development of, of carbon markets, even though we are against carbon markets. Um, as long as the countries continue down that trajectory, it's important for us to ensure uh, safety for our peoples that are most impacted by these uh, false solutions and these carbon trade schemes. Um, and another aspect of Article 6 negotiations was promoting non-market solutions in which a lot of indigenous-led solutions 
um, for large-scale um, climate change adaptation, mitigation, um, and, and response um, really plays a critical role for the preservation of biological diversity and ecosystems all across the globe. Mm -hmm. And um, in climate finance, uh, we're, we're focused on ensuring that all of these global funds that were being set up as part of these countries' commitments um, that were being made, um, that we were advocating for direct access for indigenous peoples and also pushing back against the use of those funds and neocolonial schemes um, where they target only so-called developing nations so that we could allow access for indigenous peoples that are on the front lines of climate change impacts from all nations all around the globe and across all ecosystems. Um, and, and just doing that work to ensure that our, our, the rights to self-determination are protected, indigenous rights are um, put into operational text across different negotiation streams, okay. and that we were creating spaces for indigenous peoples to put forward their priorities. All right, Janine, that is an extremely comprehensive, thorough uh, set of objectives there. Were you happy with the outcome? How well do you think uh, you folks were received? Um, it's always a struggle. And these, uh, you know, this is like the heart of empire and colonial powers um, mm -hmm. coming together to, to make these so-called commitments to climate change. And as our, our sister shared in the Indigenous Peoples Closing Statement, um, we're largely outnumbered by fossil fuel lobbyists and private interests that also are there, you know, wheeling and dealing and, and manipulating um, negotiations. Um, but, you know, with Article 6 and the lack of, of countries to once again come to agreements or consensus around Article 6.2 and 6.4, pushing those negotiations into the next COP, what we are happy with is that we weren't straddled with another bad deal, that there's still opportunity to continue to fight for um, the inclusion of Indigenous peoples' rights and human rights okay. cards. Janine, um, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you keep mentioning Article 6, and for our listeners who aren't familiar with Article 6, please provide some clarification what that means. So Article 6 is the part of the Paris Agreement um, where they are discussing the rules and regulations over the carbon, the global carbon market. And the way that countries, because countries have often put the argument that they are committed to climate change, but the, the issue is how do they raise enough public and private capital to support the solutions and the responses that are necessary. And so this introduced, you know, through the lobbying <laughs> of, of fossil fuel um, um, lobbyists and, and country polluting countries, um, this concept of carbon markets, um, which is a carbon trade scheme um, that has been shown through numerous research to be a false solution, a, a solution that doesn't uh, achieve the, the results that they claim it does. Um, but it's a way for the countries to create a credit system um, that can be um, uh, used to trade for to continue emissions in one place while right. um, co collecting private capital and public capital to invest in so-called carbon capture or carbon sequestration projects in another place. Okay. And so, so Janine, I mean, it, yeah. and for some folks, I mean, it, it, sometimes it almost seems kind of like a game of shells, right? Like, well, we'll do something good over here and we'll buy these credits so we can use fossil fuels over in this other application. And that's, it, it can be kind of confusing, I think, for some folks. So um, I also want to ask you, so 
here you are, you and some of these other attendees, native attendees, uh, and you're there representing, of course, the interests of indigenous people, Native American people in this case, but you're also there, um, there are also official delegates from the United States government who are also there. Of course, John Kerry is the U.S. Climate Envoy. And how closely aligned are the interests of you and your constituents with people like John Kerry, who are there officially representing the United States government? There's a lot of misalignment and there's a lot of um, lack of access to these decision makers. There's been a few opportunities in, during COP in which some of our delegates from North America, from the U.S., Canada, um, and, and even some of the representatives from other regions that the U.S. influences were able to meet directly with John Kerry or with the State Department. Um, there was also um, committee members and staffers from the Senate on energy, on energy Affairs. I forget what their what their name is. Um, and so there is there has been like a sprinkling of interaction with those representatives in which we um, some of our delegates have are given the opportunity to share what our priorities are. Um, but it's very clear, um, particularly this year, since um, the, the Michelle Lujan Grisham was also there. Um, that they're there to promote their own objectives, their own projects, um, and the solutions that they've invested in, and that many times those those objectives were never developed in consultation with Indigenous peoples from the U.S., and so this is right. why we try to get more people involved. All right, wonderful. Thank you, Janine, for kicking off our conversation today. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we will hear with other folks who attended COP28 in Dubai Give us a call if you have a thought about COP28 or any of these environmental issues we're going to talk about today on the show. 1-800-99-NATIVE. From horror anthologies and detective thrillers to a Wampanoag perspective of history for young readers, this year's Native Bookshelf included a diverse number of works from both seasoned and new authors. We're wrapping up 2023 in Indigenous literature on the next episode of Native America Calling. Are you a Native American healthcare provider, recovery counselor, social worker, domestic and sexual abuse advocate, or traditional healer working in Native American communities? Dr. Ruby Gibson will begin an advanced immersion in healing historical trauma. This online masterclass in somatic archaeology uses the lens of a seven-generational recovery approach providing powerful modalities and is offered tuition-free to tribal members. Registration deadline is March 1st. Info at freedomlodge.org who support this show. You're listening to Native America Calling. We're focusing on indigenous issues at this year's COP28, where global leaders meet and discuss climate change solutions. How do you think indigenous people play a role in helping reduce and stop harmful effects of climate change? Do you think state and other government bodies work well with tribes and other native-led organizations on climate change solutions? Let us know at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Let's bring Benicia Albert into our conversation now. And she is the co-executive director of the Climate Justice Alliance. And Benicia, uh, a big part of our discussion today, of course, has to do with the Paris Agreement. And it's been called historic for including language that addresses future use of fossil fuels. What's your perspective on the agreement? Um. 
you know, the, the perspective for Climate Justice Alliance, I mean, we're a, a more multicultural alliance. We have um, indigenous organizations who are part of the alliance. We have 88 members across the country. But, you know, the, the perspective of, like, the agreement is, it, one, there's a, a sort of step in, in the direction that we need to be going, but it was still not enough, and, and it wasn't inclusive of, like, impacts to frontline communities indigenous communities, black, brown um, communities and what they're dealing with. And so, and, and it's also an agreement that we've seen be a sort of political football with whoever's in elected in office to say, oh, we're aligning behind a Paris Agreement or we're not aligning behind a Paris Agreement. But, you know, much of what we're dealing with with COP28 was the, was the implementation piece, which is Article six, how will that get implemented? What will be, and what is, you know, what is inclusive of that are a lot of um, climate carbon strategies that are based on science that has just not really been proven yet. You know, a lot of techno fixes like carbon capture, um, carbon capture and storage, hydrogen, um, as some of the solutions that they're, that they're promoting and putting putting not only resources behind, but saying this is going to be the fix. But those, you know, there, there's lots of science, including people there at COP sharing lots of science of like, this is just not proven technology that can work. And we're putting in all of these resources into technologies that will not only not work and be effective to reducing the sort of carbon, you know, gains and goals that we're trying to get to, but also contribute to further harms in communities, right? They're, you know, these are still causing, you know, a lot of concerns for communities there in New Mexico. You know, folks are really concerned about hydrogen and New Mexico being a hydrogen hub, and we're there to challenge some of the promotion that, you know, Governor um, Lujan Grisham was making. But this is happening across, the, you know, across the country with with lots of communities and and part of the you know the the both the challenge and the benefit of being in a space like that is connecting not only with other communities here but other communities abroad who are also dealing with the promotion of these technologies being you know put to their communities that will that, you know they're not getting they're not getting the actual benefit from okay benishi the paris agreement it, it was legally binding in, as of 2015, so it's now what almost nine years old. I mean, it's been around a while. And just how well do you think the U.S. is doing in terms of meeting the goals of the Paris Agreement? Oh, you know, I'm sure from the administration's point of view, you think about the the goals, particularly from the place of industry. They may say, "Oh, we're doing great." <laughs> in terms mm -hmm. of the goals um, of what needs to be done to reduce the harm, the impact, um, the the climate threats that communities have been dealing with now and have been for decades, we're way far away from the mark. You know, people are still dealing with real impacts right now in terms of not only the effects of, you know, extreme storms, weather, droughts, wildfires, um, people have already been dealing with that for a long time. But then you add to that, they're also having to deal with the effects of living alongside those polluting ind industries. So when we get to a place where we say, 
hey, this facility needs to close down and shut because, you know, it's it's producing energy not in an efficient way and it's polluting and it's getting shut down. And then you, you introduce a techno fix, you know, a false techno fix like CCS, then a facility like that can open up again and say, oh, but look, we can stay open if we just capture carbon in this way and not only that, but then profit off of it. It's creating that like sort of profit sort of cycle that that keeps keeps business as usual for industry, but doesn't actually deal with the harms that communities right, are feeling. Right. And, and it also, it's just so complex. And for somebody who's not really closely dialed in to, to how this all works, such as yourself, uh, it's very easy to, to misread numbers and data. And it just sounds like it's just such a, a daunting task just to really even figure out just the depth of the issue and what some of these policies are actually able to accomplish. And I want to ask you, Benicia, I mean, how well do you think Native representation has been considered with with the Paris Agreement and just going forward and, and addressing so many of these dire issues that we're talking about today with in terms of how to just make the planet a, a healthier place to live? Um, you know, it wasn't even, I think, you know, I, I think Tom or Janine might correct me at that time, but I don't think even until the Glasgow Act, which was, two years ago now, um, was there even the inclusion of language of indigenous peoples in the, in the document itself? So, you know, already there is that. And, and I feel like even at this COP, um, there was a lot of pushback against including language around indigenous peoples, because then it makes that, then you have an international legally binding document that people have to commit to. And some countries don't want to have to have that step, that extra step of engaging with indigenous mm -hmm. peoples. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think indigenous peoples go all the time. A lot of communities, like, you know, like I said, the group that, that, that I represent includes lots of other communities as well. And, you know, go saying like, hey, we want to make sure our voices are heard in this. Um, but it's hard when you when you know you're in a space where there's, you know, 20 other like uh, lobbyists that come from oil and gas or coal or fossil fuel uh -huh. lobbyists, right? They like outnumber us and, and they hold the ear. They hold the ear of, you know, the, of, of the negotiators of John Kerry, of, of even the Biden administration in general, like they're holding that ear. And so when I think about the things that I saw the negotiators arguing for and championing for they were not things that were protections for land for community for the for the harms that communities were dealing with they were it was language that was really about like oh how do we make this easier for industry to transition okay okay Benicia, I also want to talk with you about just the significance of the location the venue there in Dubai and what that's like being a native woman, because Dubai, a city in United Arab Emirates, it's praised for its beauty. Uh, it's one of the most fantastic cities in, in the entire world in terms of the architecture, but it's also been heavily criticized for just lavish displays of wealth and privilege. And, and do you see any irony or perhaps hypocrisy in, in hosting COP28 in a city like Dubai? definitely hit an overwhelming um, city to be in. I mean, even 
just traveling the metro from downtown to the site, um, I, you know, passed through five other downtowns that were as probably big as other cities here in the U.S. It's just a really big, a, a, a big city, and and yeah, and lots of, you know, it's very apparent like the wealth that is there. Um, and so yeah, and much that of that wealth built by by fossil fuels as well. Absolutely, uh, absolutely yeah. built by fossil fuels. And the president, uh, you know, the the as the hosting nation, you know, the president comes from that, you know, that industry. That's and that was the interest. That was their interest in hosting. Was like, how can we make, you know, what is going to come out of COP be the most beneficial for the fossil fuel industry? That's their existence and livelihood. I mean, our country as a U.S., their history and livelihood is, and, and history is so entrenched around extraction, yet it's also that same extraction that has caused so much harm in communities. So to go to a city like that could be very, very overwhelming. I mean, and me, I'm like, yes, I'm in Tulsa and in the metro area, but I would rather be out, you know, out in the woods down south and um, and so it's very it's very jarring to go to a, a place like that and just see the like level of wealth and know like oh this is this is what has influence um, mm-hmm. this is the kind of influence that um, can hold and the space was really large I mean even even compared to last year in Egypt like the space was probably three or four times larger um, than where we were at in Egypt last year and. Um, and even just the sort of magnitude of that and what it took to build that space and how they built onto it and, you know, what does that mean for workers and, you know, did they have fair wages for workers? And there's lots of concerns they have just about even, like, hosting that. And, yeah, so. Yeah, I'm just interested in hearing your personal perspective as well. And, Benishi, another challenge that uh, we really need to talk about is, you know, it's so easy to point the finger at these big corporations and some of these countries that have prospered tremendously from fossil fuels. But we have to remind ourselves and our listeners that there are a number of tribes in Alaska, in North Dakota, where you are in Oklahoma, who who benefit tremendously from the production of fossil fuels. So, um where do you see tribes collectively? Uh, is there any way to, to gain any kind of broad consensus with regard to so many tribal nations with competing interests when it comes to issues related to fossil fuels? Gosh, I would say, I mean, this is probably a better question for Tom or Janine, but, um, you know, I think there, I, I, I think tribes are really going to have to, like, come to a different thinking about how, um, you know, how resources are generated for, for community and benefit. I, I think for fossil fuels in general, like that is, you know, this COP was really pushing at like, how are we phasing out and transitioning away from fossil fuels? And that, that's a charge for everyone, tribes included. And I think they're going to have to like come to a sort of real thinking about what does that mean for um, the economic viability of tribes going forward. I mean, I'm in Oklahoma, 39 tribes here. You know, they, they all have some type of holdings. I mean, there's 
whole state is based on oil extraction, right? So, mm-hmm. th- you know, that, in, that involves a number of tribes. But at the same time, like, I think tribes have the opportunity to also sort of set the stage of, like, you know, here's, here's the way that we can move forward. Here's the way that we can move in a way that is both sort of holding and valuing what we value culturally in, in terms of our relationship with land, but also in a way that, like, gives them opportunity to, you know, take care of their tribal citizens in the way that they need to. And part of that is also just going to be, like, a change in how the U.S. as a country looks at its own economy. Um, and right now, they, they hold one of their sort of main foundation pieces being around fossil fuel extraction. And I think that's going to have to change as a country and, you know, for the tribes, they're going to have to change their thinking in that too. Thanks a lot, Benicia. Really appreciate your insights uh, along with Janine. And let's bring Tom Goldtooth into our conversation now. Tom is the executive director of the Indigenous Environmental Network. He was also at COP28. And Tom, what are your key takeaways? What did you find most uh, most significant about your time in Dubai there? First of all, you know, our Indigenous Environmental Network, uh, we've been going for a number of years, decades, in fact. We take uh, frontline communities who have been dealing with fossil fuels development and everything that goes with it. We also bring people, indigenous people from the global south. Uh, but we, we, you know, we went with a strategy and, you know, part of it is uh, confronting a lot of those things Janine and, and Benishi talked about, but part of it was, you know, to demand a, a rapid just transition for building, you know, uh, a binding global phase out of fossil fuels and all extraction and production at source. So, you know, I mean, that's whole another couple hours of discussion is, you know, what does that mean, especially for us as, as Native Indigenous people? You know, my takeaway is that it was not good enough. The final uh, text that came out of there, you know, violated a lot of those things that we fight for back in Indian country. You know, we fight that, you know, it's not about consultation. It's about, you know, free prior and informed consent and the right to say no. You know, I was very angry and frustrated that in the final hours that this uh, president of the of the cop, you know, uh, um, you know, who comes from United Arab Emirates and and he's a national, you know, he's a national oil company head. He's an oil tycoon, you know, and uh, he rushed it through with no consultation, no feedback from countries like Samoa. You know, Samoa was, you know, finally got to say what they wanted to say at the very end after the decision was was pushed forward by the president. You know, and 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 the person cried. The person cried about this being a death sentence to his people of the ocean, the rising tide. And that's why, you know, we were part of a movement of many people, especially as indigenous people, that this is a life and death issue, that we need some really, and not just ambitious, but we need some real, uh, real direction from world leaders, especially the U.S., U.K., uh, other wealthy countries that just are bullying, bullying developing countries, those same things that we experience here 
in the United States. You know, and one, one thing about the, the Paris Agreement in 2015, it was not legally binding. It's not a legal binding treaty, especially on fossil fuels. Fossil fuel was rarely, rarely, rarely mentioned. But the trading of carbon offsets, carbon trading admissions was. So uh, one of our attorneys uh, said it's, it was nothing but a trading instrument. And that's mm -hmm. what I see coming out of this. This COP was a business transaction. That's right. robbing Tell us of our very humanity, especially violating those, those okay. sacred principles. And Tom, we, I'm sorry, we have to take another break, Tom, but I'm, I'm going to let you finish uh, when we come back. And I definitely want to hear more about, uh, you know, you, you say you anger and frustration that you felt and just um, some of these issues. Uh, we're going to talk about more after this break and, and get more details. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. Does your club, institution, or other group need custom-branded apparel? A wide variety of t-shirts, hoodies, and much more, all custom-printed or embroidered, are available from nativescreenprinting.com, a division of Skyscreen Printing who support this program. Support for journalism that raises the awareness of child well-being to citizens and to policymakers provided by the Annie E. Casey Foundation, building a brighter future for children, families, and communities. Information at aecf.org. This is Native American Calling. I'm Sean Spruce, and we are talking about COP28 today with Janine Yazzie, Benishi Albert, and Tom Goldtooth. Join this conversation with 1-800-996-2848 being the number to call. Once again, 1-800-996-2848. Now, Tom, going into break, uh, you expressed uh, your anger and frustration with regard to how COP28 was conducted and, and the voices that really resonated and uh, the power and influence that some of these countries and other these carbon, uh, carbon fuel industries really represent. Uh, you talked about the the bullying nature by some of these countries towards indigenous populations and just uh, the significance of that the Paris Agreement not being legally binding. And I also want to ask you about this issue, because when we started our show, we had that pre-record from Sarah Hansen, and she mentioned closed-door meetings. And I wanted to ask you, what is she referring to? Are there spaces there at COP28 where indigenous people were not included? Well, Yes and no. I mean, one of the things that people have to realize going into the U.N. system is that, um, you know, we're limited as indigenous peoples, whether it's the north or south, to be classified as non-governmental organizations, NGOs. Uh, nation states, governments go as parties, parties of the sovereign of, of governments of the world. Of course, as indigenous peoples from the north, from the U.S. and Canada, we go as sovereigns. We, we want to participate as sovereigns, but we are classified as observers. That's, a, that's, that's, that's something that's established. Now, countries have times when they need to have closed meetings just with themselves, but the intention is that there be transparency, this president uh, that, that was from, from UAE stressed inclusivity to be transparent. And yes, we know that there's some meetings that's closed door. Okay, it's not open to observers, the NGOs. 
but mm -hmm. uh, but what gets extreme, it got extreme where some of these meetings went all day with no transparency, no feedback, back to the observers, the NGOs and indigenous people standing out in the hallway, wanting to know what's going on, to have input. It was extreme. They pushed the envelope until maybe late at night, you know, we were included to, to come in. So that's the situation. Um, and okay. um, the listeners have to realize that there were 2,400 fossil fuel industry representatives at this COP, and about five, close to 500 lobbyists working for unproven geoengineering technologies such as carbon capture and storage. You know, so there's, there's inequities there as well. Tom, so it's, I mean, NGOs, non-governmental organizations, and um, so I think it's interesting. You represent the Indigenous Environmental Network. We've got Janine, who is with Indian Collective, and Benishi, who's with Climate Justice Alliance. Now, you folks do great work. Um, you're nonprofits. Were there any specific tribal nations, delegates representing tribal nations in attendance? And if so, were they treated as NGOs as well? Yes, they get treated as NGOs. Uh, you have to, you have to be accredited or registered by uh, a non-governmental organization that has gone through the process of you know, just getting registered in the UN system. Uh, National Congress of in American Indians is accredited, okay, in in this UN meeting. So is uh, Assembly of First Nations in Canada. They represent the government, the tribal nations. So NCII was there, uh, uh, Fawn Sharp was there uh, from Washington State, uh, not Washington State, but she, that's where she lives up there. Uh, so there were a number of people there who are respective tribal elected leaders within the tribes, uh, but they participate as NGOs. Okay, thank you. Well, Tom, one of the... One of the one of the things I, you know, I just quickly wanted to talk about in this, too, is that in addition to these fault solutions, you know, addressing finance, loss and damage, finance and funding is a big issue. But, it, but the, the climate finance system in the U.N. Uh, has no way that they can secure the rights of indigenous peoples. And that's something our caucus and IEN had to fight for, recognition like the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, that find that climate finance in that space has a, has a weird position that it doesn't address sovereignty, jurisprudence, territorial rights, the demarcation mm -hmm. of ancestral lands. You know, and addressing what is land back, what is reparation for indigenous peoples. These okay. were big issues that we had to address and will continue to address in future meetings. Tom, the question here that, that I think a lot of listeners have is, is it realistic to expect a, a transition away from utilizing fossil fuels when there's so much remaining oil development with so much economic potential on the line. We've done shows here on Native American Calling uh, about the proposed Willow development and Alaska and, of course, Oklahoma, these, some of these other states with huge, huge fossil fuel interests. I mean, 
what what are you proposing, Tommy? Would you just like to see all fossil fuels just eradicated from from the earth, or, or, or do you want to do it in stages? I mean, what's your what's your grand vision? What what would be the perfect solution to climate change in, in your mind? From our consultation with traditional elders in ceremony, what we lift up as as um, uh, traditional indigenous knowledge, you know, we've done our homework as indigenous environmental network. I went in 1998 based out of a, a workshop on climate change in Albuquerque, New Mexico, 1998. And uh, tribal government was there, but we brought in ceremonial leaders like Orville Looking Horse, for an example, Tom Stillday from Red Lake up here in northern Minnesota with the Ojibwe people. Orrin Lyons, a faith keeper, was there. So we had to bring in that voice. But from that was a realization of our people understanding the greenhouse effect. And the reality right now we're dealing with is that Mother Earth and Father Sky cannot absorb any more carbon dioxide. That's bottom line. So how do we... Do we compromise as indigenous peoples based upon our teachings? Something has to give, and it means that we have to we have to move the world agenda and the U.S. agenda as, as best as we can to hold the line and respect our own teachings and ceremony that uh, the production, the mining, production, combustion of fossil fuels cannot continue. Our future is, is being jeopardized, the sacredness of Mother Earth. How do we compromise that? How do we say, well, I can't survive without fossil fuels? You know, we are part of also a global uh, fossil fuel nonproliferation mm -hmm. treaty. It has three pillars. People can look that up. But the global right. just transition is addressing some of those questions of developing countries says, hey, we need fossil fuels to survive. It's part of our economic system. So part of global just transition with our tribes is to really start having meetings around this, doing deep dives and critical analysis. Uh, you know, how can we move beyond a fossil fuel economy? What's our just transition? We're not saying overnight for Indian country. But we need to start having dialogue with our youth, our women's societies, our traditional leaders, our ceremonial leaders, and our political leadership. How are we going to take responsibility as Indian country in this? Tom, you've been to many of these COP meetings and convenings dating back to, I believe, 1998. So you've been to like been to more than 20 of these. And have you? Have you been impressed or, or do you see progress at all with regard to the COP convenings? Are you, do you see an evolution there? If you reflect back on the very first one you went to back in 1998, give us a little bit of a timeline there, that perspective. Mm, yeah. The first meeting I went to in Argentina, there's only uh, eight, eight indigenous peoples there at the meeting, eight representing the world. And four of them were from the indigenous peoples there in Argentina. And, uh, you know, one part of our role is to help build, you know, a mechanism, an infrastructure for, for bringing more native indigenous peoples to these meetings. 
I think uh, Janine may remember. I, I think this one we had uh, over 300, you know, people there this year. But part of it is also to lift up our knowledge, our original instructions, and share that because we're dealing with a different structure, a different world that doesn't understand who we are as people of the land and our spiritual relationship. So that's something that we've been involved with. And I like to say that since then, there's been tremendous uh, education and support by more uh, community-based organizations, more non-governmental organizations with understanding what we've been lifting up is around real solutions, but not false solutions. False solutions that manipulate and modify the sacred, like uh, like spraying particles in the stratosphere, manipulation of capturing and carbon, and like a straw pumping it back into Mother Earth things like that, that it's a violation of the sacred. So how do we get society to understand what we mean when we talk about the sacredness of Mother Earth? Those things we make progress, especially when we have mechanisms to have outside strategy with people outside the UN. Like in Glasgow, it was a lot of mobilization outside the UN. That builds movement, and that's what we're about. The final thing I just want to throw out for the listeners is that you know, we do have an indigenous principles of just transition. They can find that on our webpage. But part of it does require for us as native people here in the belly of the beast to look deep within ourselves. What's our transformation, transformation for action? What do we mean when we, say, when we say green economy? And the need for, you know, us to really look at what is our index for living well? What does that mean to us? And that does mean moving away from our dependency on fossil fuels. Uh, sustainable right. development needs to find, but there's so much um, solar and wind, renewable energy has gotten a lot better. It's cheaper now, I hear, in many parts of the world to develop and which tribes can can start to look towards. Those are things that we're advocating for, an indigenous-based just transition. Tom, thanks so much for joining us today. And I want to pivot back to Janine Yazzie as we wind down the show. And Janine, let me ask you a question. Do you plan to attend COP29? And if so, will you approach it differently than COP28? Absolutely. And I think that the difference in the approach um, that we'll be building with Indian Collective, but in partnership with many of the organizations that have been involved in participating in these negotiation spaces, like International Indian Treaty Council um, is one of, one of the main ones, um, is to ensure that we're building participation prior to COP. Many people know that you know COP is the big conference, and the, the but they don't really understand that it's a cumulative event of a year of negotiations leading up to COP, and the the a lot of the um, difficulties and challenges in raising the resources, getting the visas for Indigenous peoples to participate in COP often takes up most of our energy when it comes to us prioritizing what spaces we're in. And what we're looking to do is working with others to increase spaces and access to the substa meetings, which are the preliminary meetings that and, and where a lot of the negotiations, critical negotiations take place prior to these texts 
being sent to the COP forum. And so uh, another aspect is to move beyond COP. You know, there are other UN bodies that are discussing these things, and one of them is the Convention on Biological Diversity, the CBD. And a lot of what comes out of there ends up influencing what happens in COP negotiations. And one of the, the big linkages and problems that we're trying to address as Indigenous peoples is the separation and distinction of Indigenous peoples from the concept of local communities which um, is leading to uh, creating a framework and a precedent that is diluting our rights as indigenous peoples, um, which is you know, uh, detailed and, and, and set through the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And so, yeah, we, we will continue to modify and build up our strategy to increase access of young leaders, um, to step into leadership positions in these spaces, and to increase collaboration with indigenous organizations that are fighting for are people on the front lines of climate change prior to um, next year's COP. And Janine, what's way, the best way for our listeners to learn more about the work you folks are doing at Indian Collective? Um, sign up for our listserv, uh, follow us on our socials. We have um, extensive coverage on our webpage for all of the activities that we've done, both as Indian Collective, but also as a partner to the Indigenous, um, the Inter Indigenous Peoples Caucus. Um, and yeah, uh, they, they're also more than uh, welcome to reach out to me directly at Janine at IndianCollective.org. Okay, thank you. And Benishi, Climate Justice Alliance, where can listeners learn more? Yes, ClimateJusticeAlliance.org. Um, the number of um, resource materials that people can look at too, um, including some pieces around just transition and what we're asking for. And, um, and to your earlier question, just you had to Tom. But thank you for having us on today. Absolutely. I want to thank all of you, Venetia uh, Albert, Tom Goldtooth Sr., and Janine Yazzie for talking with us today about their experiences at COP28. Join us here at Native America Calling again tomorrow for a wrap-up of Native literature published in 2023. Hope you'll tune in. are sacred and deserve the best. Check in with them and make sure they have the health care coverage they need. For more information, visit healthcare.gov coverage or call 1-800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting 
with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.